Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's programme is Lucy Ward, talking about her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus. We're staying with the science theme. We'll hear from neurobiologist William Harris on his book, Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built. And Sam Miller chats about his first poetry collection, Retail Park. But Lucy, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for having me. Catherine, the great Russian, of course, and looking at your CV, a varied CV, Russia pops up a lot. You've lived in Moscow. It's obviously uh, you've got an interest in Russian history. What is it about Russia? It began, I was a teenager in the 1980s, and Russia was never out of the news. (laughs) Nothing's really changed. Obviously, that was a time of the Cold War. So we were constantly seeing Russia literally described as the evil empire. And I just found that intriguing. I found it interesting to know what this country was, which we only ever saw in the context of an enemy in the news and so on. And it just fascinated me. So when I was 17, I asked my parents if for my 18th birthday, anybody that was likely to give me any money for that birthday could club together and buy me a ticket to go to Moscow and Leningrad as it then was. This was in 1987. And I would go and visit and just sort of have a look. (laughs) And bizarrely, they did. And I went with a friend after Moscow and Leningrad. And it turned out to be the week that Margaret Thatcher was visiting President Gorbachev. And so there was this additional drama and this amazing sense of having a kind of view of history beginning to change. And even at 17, I did find that fascinating. So saw Moscow and Leningrad in the Soviet period. And I think that was an enormous privilege in a way to see their country at that time and then having been back and lived there as well I've seen how it's changed I think it's to do with its otherness it's a sense of it's different from Britain in different ways from the way any other country is different and that intrigues me and I've never really lost that fascination and your background in journalism it covers politics education and social affairs so this book really does combined with that Russian element tick every one of your boxes really doesn't it it does. It's really interesting. I was thinking about this and, and I think this book is, it's as if lots of tributaries flowed into this sort of stream, you know, and some of them were even underwater and I hadn't even noticed them and they came together. I worked for The Guardian as a lobby journalist, which meant I worked in Parliament as a political correspondent. That was at the time of Tony Blair coming to power in 1997 and a lot of women came into Parliament famously at that point. And I was very interested in women in power and in how more women could be brought into political posts. And so obviously that feeds into this book about about an empress. And also there's actually a personal side to it too in the sense that I have three children and the first one was born in 2000. And around that time, Andrew Wakefield, who was a doctor, was claiming that there was a link between the MMR and autism. And these claims have been utterly discredited, as has he, has been struck off. So I, as a parent, had to think about vaccination then. Uh, I had my children all vaccinated and I strongly believe in trusting experts in science I suppose rather than superstition so of course that feeds into this book very directly as well. Very enjoyable book and we'll talk about it uh, in more detail over the course of the show but we'll hear your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you? It is. I grew up with the kind of music that no one else ever really knows, with a lot of folk music in my house. My dad especially was very interested in the sort of 1970s folk revival. So we had a lot of folk played and a lot of classical in our house and not much sort of popular music. I don't think I really listened to any till I was about 13, 14. And I used to feel almost guilty. It's absolutely bizarre (laughs) now when I look back on it. I did get over it and start buying smash hits and things. And uh, I think there was absolutely some fantastic music in the 80s, but I do have... Yeah, a very strong sense of folk music. And in fact, my family, I'm not in this, but have a band where my daughter plays Irish fiddle and my partner plays guitar with her and they have some other people in the band as well. So that's a big part of our family life too. This choice is Tracy Chapman, Mountains of Things. Why this one? Tracy Chapman is an absolutely extraordinary songwriter and political activist. Although I sometimes 
find the word activist difficult. I think she's a very interesting version of it in an 80s sense. She manages to combine intensely political songs that are also really humane, very, very personal, and also utterly beautiful in their writing and incredibly catchy. So I've chosen Mountains of Things because it's a little bit less well-known than Fast Car or Talking About a Revolution, or other two really well-known songs. But this one, again, has this sense of sort of poignancy of someone wishing for wealth but it manages to combine that and a kind of generosity towards the desire to have things when you don't have them with a critique of materialism and of you know the wastefulness of wealth and of how it doesn't make you happy life i've always wanted i guess i'll never have i'll be working for somebody else until i'm in my grave i'll be dreaming of a life of ease and mountains oh mountains oh thanks That's Mountains of Things by Tracy Chapman, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Lucy Ward. Lucy has written as a journalist for The Guardian and The Independent. The Empress and the English Doctor is her first book and came out in April this year. It tells the true story of how Catherine the Great joined forces with the Quaker doctor Thomas Dimsdale from Essex to use her own body to spearhead a groundbreaking public health campaign. The Times called it fascinating and The Economist said it was vivid and well told. And I too enjoyed it as well very much. Uh, We're going to talk about obviously the people who are at the heart of this book, The Empress and Thomas Dimsdale. But let's set the scene first of all because this is the 18th century and their common enemy was smallpox. Hard for us to imagine smallpox now because it was officially eradicated in the 80s, wasn't it? But talk us through the effect that smallpox was having on the world back then. That's right. It was it was declared eradicated in 1980, although it still killed hundreds of millions of people in the 20th century and it is remarkable how forgotten it is really. In the 18th century, smallpox, which had been a serious disease in centuries previously, was becoming even more virulent. It was sweeping in epidemic waves around Europe. It's very difficult to gauge exactly the mortality rate, but it was killing around 400,000 people a year. Around one in five people who caught it died. And it was almost unavoidable. Parents were told you shouldn't count your children before they've had smallpox because so many children died of the disease. And there were periods when epidemics were at their height, say in 1752 in London, I think it was one in six of all deaths were down to smallpox. So you can see this absolutely enormous devastation, this kind of scything through communities and the the huge impact that had and the enormous fear. And the crucial thing about smallpox is that there was no cure and there's never been a cure. No one ever found out how to treat it. It can be fended off with vaccination. People were kept warm because certainly at the beginning of the 18th century there was a humoral understanding of medicine and because smallpox was so universal there was a belief that it actually existed as as an innate seed inside everybody and so when people got smallpox that was a manifestation of this disease trying to get out if you like this poison and so to accelerate this poison leaving the body doctors would keep patients very warm it's absolutely the worst thing you can do with the fever of this condition and so the treatment was actually probably even more harmful or as harmful as the disease. The other thing they would do would be to bleed people or to try and expel things from the body in other ways. Again, none of these things, they just weakened people. So there really wasn't a way to deal with it, at least at the very beginning of the 18th century, certainly in Europe anyway. And how it manifested itself was pretty horrible. Yeah, it was a really gruesome disease. Contagion came as by breathing in the virus, then there'd be a kind of dormant period where you wouldn't know you were, you had it, and then a, a period where you'd be infectious and would be, you could obviously then pass it on potentially, which is why it could spread easily. And then pustules would emerge on the body, they would superate, you know, I can be as nasty as you like about this, I've spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking right, about pustules, we'll, we'll, we'll clear it, but, but really it was deeply deeply unpleasant, This the body would kind of smell, the whole thing was an awful experience, and you know, if you got a particularly bad variant of this disease, then the pustules would pretty much join up and there was absolutely no hope. As I say, one in five died. And of those that survived, they would routinely be disfigured to a greater or lesser extent, scarred by the pustules themselves. But also smallpox could cause blindness or damage to the eyes and it could also affect joints. So it's not just a disease that you then recover from. It has these lasting effects and a very kind of visual presence within the culture that 
smallpox scars were everywhere. And if you look back at newspapers from the 18th century, you can see that when the descriptions of people are given, for example, if a, an apprentice has run away from their master, they'll talk about smallpox scarring as a, as a means of describing that person. It was everywhere, and that meant people were always conscious of it and always fearful of it. And so enter into that scenario Catherine the Great. She had very much a personal mission against smallpox. She also had a personal connection to it. Like many people, she'd seen cases of it, and in fact her own husband, although she had ousted him in a coup by the time this book is set, and he'd been murdered shortly after that, don't believe what happens in the great. It really is not reliable history. But Catherine's, at the time, fiancé, Peter, had had smallpox and she had she saw him when he was scarred just immediately after he'd had the disease and she found his appearance very shocking. She decided to look at how she could deal with it because, as I mentioned, you'd have these waves of epidemics that would flood through a country and during 1768 an epidemic of smallpox came to St Petersburg and the court was no safer than anywhere else. It's not a disease of poverty and so she was very fearful for herself and for her son and heir and neither of them had had smallpox. Quite unusual for her to have reached that age actually 39 without having had it. So she was particularly concerned that her heir on whom her legitimacy sort of depended would obviously be struck down and Catherine knew about a technology called inoculation. It's the forerunner of vaccination. This all comes, by the way, before Edward Jenner and vaccination itself. So inoculation was a means of conferring immunity to the disease. And what you did was give somebody a small dose of smallpox itself in order to give them a mild case of the disease and then they would have immunity for life. And you did this by uh, making a very tiny incision on their, usually on their upper arms and then dabbing that with some pus from a smallpox victim. It would give them a, a mild, controllable, survivable case and then immunity. And this was a technique that had come to Europe from Turkey and Britain had kind of taken up this technology and Catherine had come across it previously and had even raised the, the prospect of having her son inoculated but had been advised against it but at this point with this risk of smallpox really high she decided that she would go ahead and have her son inoculated and then she thought that if she did that and he died then people would think that she'd poisoned him in this kind of very febrile suspicious superstitious atmosphere in Russia where bear in mind she's German she's not a native Russian and so she decided she'd have herself inoculated too. And so she turns to Britain. Her ambassador in London, Count Musin Pushkin, was charged with finding her the best expert that he possibly could. And so she found Thomas Dimsdale. He originally said no when he was uh, asked to do it. But he was an extraordinary man, wasn't he? Fundamentally extremely different from her, and that's what I found so interesting in, in the book. He's a Quaker doctor. He was born in 1712 in Epping, in Essex. His family were Quakers, and his father was a doctor, as his grandfather and probably great-grandfather in some form had been. He'd moved to Hartford and set up a business as a, a surgeon and later a physician. And he got into inoculation, had been inoculating for a very long time, for a good part of his career. And in fact, he'd become a kind of society inoculator. So as well as ministering to the poor of Hartford, he was also inoculating some of the wealthiest people in Britain because inoculation had spread far, was taken up far more readily among the elite than it was among the poor who was suspicious of what this strange preventative approach really meant. And Thomas Dimsdale had written a treatise about how to inoculate, and that was published in 1767, and it had immediately become a bestseller. He was also drawn to Catherine's attention because he was a Quaker, and a good contact of her ambassador in London was a Quaker doctor called John Fothergill. So there were very strong Quaker networks, partly because the Quakers were kept out of institutions like, Ox like Oxford and Cambridge. They wouldn't swear allegiance, so they couldn't become MPs, they couldn't go to Oxford and Cambridge, where you'd have to swear allegiance to the Crown. And so... Dr. John Vothergill introduces Russian ambassador to Thomas Dimsdale and they say, we've got this project of introducing inoculation into the Russian Empire. Thomas Dimsdale's 56. He has a thriving practice, plenty of money, seven children. He says, you know, I've got enough going on. I, I thank you very much, but no. And then a message goes back to Catherine and suddenly a messenger comes hurtling back very, very quickly from St. Petersburg back to London saying, you know, tell him that it's this is to inoculate the Empress herself and her son. And they tell him, they recall him to London, have another meeting with the ambassador, and he's told this, and, and he feels it's his duty. He must take up this uh, invitation. 
And within literally a few weeks, he's in a fast carriage with his son, who's a medical student, heading off to St. Petersburg, ready to inoculate the Empress of Russia. And her motive for doing this, I mean, it's sort of early PR, really, isn't it? it it's a role model. It's, it's much the same as when we saw the Queen being vaccinated against COVID. Exactly. And that's, it's a particularly important thing with vaccination, I think, because you're asking people to take a preventative step, to take a tiny risk in order to avoid a much larger one. Catherine's impulse for doing this began with self-preservation, preservation of her son and heir. But because she was a consummate politician, she recognised, I think, quite rapidly the possibilities of using this act as a political statement, both domestically and overseas, to represent her country and herself. By being inoculated, she showed herself as a supporter of science, as someone that was orientated to Western Europe and to the enlightened values. She very consciously wanted to portray herself as an enlightened leader and Russian as a Western country. Within Russia, she first of all, she wanted to bring down rates of smallpox within Russia, partly from humane reasons, but also because it had a huge effect on population growth. Lots of children died of it. And for her, the wealth of a country was very much invested in its people. And so she had quite a strong, a very strong public health mission anyway. And she was very conscious that there was strong superstition in Russia against inoculation. So she recognised quickly that she could set an example. She very explicitly talks about this setting an example. You know, she was an influencer, really, if you want to use a modern term. She knew that by doing this herself and also for her child, she could stand up in front of the Russian people, again, bearing in mind she's not Russian, and say, look, I took this risk for you. I had this courage. I've done this for you and I've led you and now you can do the same. And of course, that leadership extends beyond inoculation itself. It's demonstrating her leadership and her love of the Russian people. She presented herself as almost a Christ-like figure looking after her sheep. So she can convey that image domestically and she made sure she did it. She did it through orthodox masses um, by uh, the arts. She had a ballet commissioned called uh, The Defeat of Prejudice. She had poetry. She even introduced a national holiday. If you want to persuade any country, probably, but uh, particularly Russians, that to do something, have a party, you know, give them a day off every year. And so remarkably, she had an annual day to celebrate her inoculation. And then overseas, she's also doing the same thing. She's saying, look, look how enlightened I am. Look at the values I have. Russia is is not some dark continent. It's a place of openness and it's westward looking. It's an amazing example of statecraft. You know, it works on many levels, this act. Thank you, Lucy. Well, let's stay with science for a little longer and hear from William Harris. William Harris is Professor Emeritus of Anatomy at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of the Royal Society. Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built, a detailed look at the development of the human brain historically and individually, came out in July. When I spoke to William, I started by asking him what had originally drawn him to the field of neurobiology. I'm not exactly sure. I think it was something that happened when I was an undergraduate and I was taking a course in genetics and I heard something about the genes that affect behavior in flies. And I was also taking a neurobiology course and learning about how the nervous system works a little bit. And I got seriously interested in genes and behavior and how how those two are related. Did a PhD with someone named Seymour Benzer, who was particularly interested in genes and behavior in flies. And once I was into it, it's hard to uh, turn back when there's so much that isn't known. And you can see that there's a lot of territory that you could explore. It sounds a big step to go from flies to looking at the human brain, is it? It's less than one thinks. Because nervous systems evolved hundreds of millions of years ago in ancestors of flies and humans and were laid out in fairly similar ways with similar kinds of cells doing similar kinds of information processing tasks. So it wasn't as big as you think. And many of the lessons that have come to us about the human brain started as discoveries made in Drosophila or worms, nematode worms, which have even fewer neurons, only like 300 odd neurons. Basically, the same type of processing is done at a simpler level in simpler organisms. 
So you've been four decades working in, in neurobiology. This book, has that been brewing all of this time? Not at all. I wrote a textbook with co-authors to help teach the subject of developmental neuroscience or how the brain develops. And that wasn't just about humans. It was about all organisms. That helped me consolidate a framework of telling the story of the development of the nervous system. But then I retired in 2018 and I was looking for something to do. And I thought if I could tell the story to a lay audience or a a non-scientifically expert audience, it would have to interest them. And it was a chance to explain how the work that has been done on a variety of systems from experimental animals and cells and culture and even theoretical work relates to what we know about how the human brain develops. So many of the, the stories in the book start out with discoveries that were made in frogs or fish or something like that, and then have gone on to be shown to be basically the same in humans. And people have commented on the humorous style with which you've written this and you've interspersed it with your own personal experiments and uh, thoughts. At what stage in the writing did that come to you, that this was the tone you needed to use and that you were going to do it in that format? I got some advice from other writers who suggested that putting in a little bit of personal stuff, even though I didn't want to make this book about me, but just putting in a a little bit of personal stuff here and there helped people pay attention and to see who was writing and from what perspective. And that I think is important because it is a story I'm telling. Certainly not all developmental neurobiologists would tell this story in the same way. So this shows that I'm giving it a personal slant the way I tell the story. And I suppose, you know, this is a book that is relevant to every single one of us, isn't it? We've all got a brain. So there's uh, something in there for every person to read, even if they never read anything about neurobiology before. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping that I banished from the book any technical language that was not appropriate. So I worked hard over and over again to read bits of it and see and have people read bits of it to see if there was anything that hung them up in terms of biological nomenclature that I'm used to writing in scientific papers. It's meant to be so that people who are interested in how they got their brains, or maybe a pregnant mother, you know, what's going on inside the head of the fetus that's inside her, the embryo that's inside her. I think that's an interesting story. I mean, it's a big story, isn't it? Because you have the development of the brain in humans throughout their life and then in history. So when you're looking at tackling something that massive, where did you start? The starting point is always the same for me. It's the fertilization of an egg. And we follow the story, what we say in biology is ontologically or ontogenetically, developmentally. So you go from one cell to two cells to four cells, and you start building this creature, be it a human or a frog or whatever. But it starts off the same way. This ball of cells starts to make little organs. It might start to make muscle cells and bone cells, and it also starts to make a brain. And we just follow that through the stages of development. And it's told more from the perspective of cells than it is in a strict chronological. This is what's happening at two weeks. This is what's happening at three weeks. It's told more in conceptual steps. So first, you have to make the right number of cells. Second, you have to pattern the cells so that some of the cells will make the forebrain, some of the cells will make the spinal cord. Then the cells have to stop dividing and turn into the neurons and glia of our brain. How does that happen? Then they have to connect up. So it's in that way that the story is told, and it puts it back onto stages rather than, okay, this is what's happening at six months, this is what's happening at seven months. It's, you know, this conceptual thing 
wiring up is happening throughout this time. It starts here, ends here. It's kind of like that. And after all the time that you spent working in this field, putting together this book, did you learn anything that surprised you? Tons of things. I was spending a lot of time doing research, library kind of research, when I was writing it, finding out about the characters. So there's a lot about the scientists and how they discovered things and what they did. I knew some of these names of the scientists in a very basic way, but I I hadn't looked up their histories and seen more about what they were about. So I was learning things about the scientists who did the work, and I was learning things about diseases and defects in, in development that I hadn't known about before and which things related to which aspects of neural development. Myself, I was a basic researcher. I was not medical. My work was trying to find out about basic mechanisms. So I kind of avoided the medical stuff because I wanted to find out, you know, how things worked. But in this book, to make it relevant and interesting, I was more drawn to seeing the medical implications of some of the developmental aspects of brain development. And if there is a takeaway message from this book, what would that be? I think there's two, but the main one I seem to harp on about is that because it's a very complicated process, it's the most complicated thing in the known world, the brain. And there are thousands and thousands of steps involved in its building, thousands of genes involved. And not only all these genes involved, but the environment affects the way the brain develops. So when a baby is in utero, what the mother is experiencing and eating and suffering or enjoying makes its way hormonally somehow to impose an environment on this developing brain, which affects the way the brain develops. And then there's a lot of random stuff that happens. As far as we know, it's unpredictable. Identical twins in the same womb at the same time are still born with quite different brains from each other. And that's probably down to chance. And that means that everyone, when they're born, has already got a brain as different from each other as you could imagine, almost. It's like everybody is born with a different face, and you can see that at birth. But you can't see their brains, but their brains are even more different than their faces. The other thing that comes out of this is it's not nature, it's not nurture, it's not chance. It's a combination of all these things. There's been a lot of talk about is nature more important, is nurture more important. And this book would make it clear to people that it's an interaction all the time. You can't have one without the other, that nature and nurture are important, as well as serendipity, chance. And Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built by William Harris is published by Princeton University Press. We're talking on Bookmark today to Lucy Ward about her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus. Lucy, we left uh, Thomas Dimsdale hurtling towards uh, Russia in a carriage. When he arrived there to perform this uh, inoculation on Catherine the Great and her son, the pressure on him must have been absolutely immense. Yeah, I mean, he he arrived and was installed in an apartment just next to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg on a street called Millionaire, so Millionaire's Row. So it's very grand apartment and the next day he's whisked off to go and meet Count Panin, Catherine's advisor who says to him you hold in your hands the lives of two of the greatest personages in the world can you imagine how it felt to him and Thomas Dimsel had done multiple multiple inoculations and people don't realise how successful inoculation was before vaccination came in at all he'd done some 6,000 inoculations with only one death But of course, he's in a different country. He's worried in a way, you know, they understood that there could be different variants, that the virus might work differently. And he was really cautious. When he met Catherine, with whom he got on immediately incredibly well, they were so different. And yet they bonded extraordinarily. She was very charismatic and 
confident, very good at putting him at his ease. He's slightly, slightly awkward, a bit shy, very direct. So she respected that directness and his expertise. And he respected that she respected his expertise in a sense and that she'd informed herself about inoculation. So they get on very well, but he's still terrified. And in fact, he writes home to his friend Henry Nichols in London. I was extremely lucky to have the papers, the family papers from the Dimsdale family. They generously gave me access to these papers that include letters between Thomas Dimsdale and Catherine and and his medical notes. But yeah, he writes home to his friend Henry talking about how deeply anxious he is. At one point, he even says, will you settle a debt for me? Because he's effectively saying, in case I don't come back, there's a real risk that if this goes wrong, then you know, he's not going to get out of there alive. This is a safe procedure by then. And she is remarkable in her ability to sort of have that confidence. But that doesn't mean there isn't risk here. And her son is quite sickly too. And so there's this possibility he may not get through it. And yet she never shows to anybody anything other than complete purposeful belief and faith that this will all work well. And as you say, their relationship very strong. And obviously, he's a doctor and he's recording things. Like he got to know her body and her bodily functions pretty intimately. He did, absolutely. And and as I say, so from the Dimsdale family, we have his medical notes about Catherine. He arrived and he wanted to make an assessment of her health. And this is typical of a, of a physician of that era because disease really was understood very much personally and as how it affected the individual body. So he, yeah, he gave her really what amounts to the sort of medical questionnaire almost that we might have now at the doctors, you know, how many units of alcohol (laughs) do you drink a week, exercise regime, etc. And she actually lived a remarkably abstemious life. But yeah, you are right. He found out all sorts of things. He would be giving her purges before the actual inoculation. So, of course, he knew everything about her bowel movements. He knew about her periods and marked that down. I don't know how often we know that about any other female ruler. Yeah, he was very close to her, but she trusted him implicitly. She actually didn't really like doctors. She didn't like Russian doctors. She thought they were charlatans often, I think. But she trusted Thomas Dimsdale, and that was absolutely essential in this case. Well, let's see your second choice of music. You'll Be My Ain True Love by Alison Krauss. Why this one? As I mentioned, I grew up with folk music, and although this isn't a traditional folk song, it has that feel of it. This one, which is a kind of folk country song, it comes from the film Cold Mountain. It's a wife talking to a husband at war, and she's saying that he can survive whatever war will throw at him. And there's something very poignant about it, and it's a great tune. You'll walk unscathed through musket fire No plowman's blade will cut thee down No cutlass wound will mar thy face And you will be Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our And we're talking to Lucy Ward on Bookmark today about her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus. Lucy, I think it's not not a spoiler to say that the inoculation was a success. How did the success of that inoculation change things? No, you're right. She does go on to rule for a lot longer. I mean, obviously, it preserved Catherine and her son from the killer disease of the age. Had she died of smallpox, that would have changed history dramatically. She went on to try to introduce inoculation across her empire. She had inoculation hospitals built and she sought to project her own example as widely as she could domestically to try to encourage people to follow her example. She had an interesting conversation with Thomas Dimsdale. They meet some peasants who she has invited to be inoculated and she says to Thomas that she's paid them a rouble to be inoculated and now they're wanting more money to do it but she laughs at that so she's almost sending herself up but she says to him I believe in persuasion I don't think that we should impose inoculation on people now she's quite early in her reign 
but it obviously extends beyond the notion of inoculation itself and that that's part of the way she sees her power. You know, I was writing this during lockdown. Yes, that must have been very strange. And so in the background were contemporary examples or echoes of the same arguments people were having in the 18th century. And this idea that, you know, of how do you persuade people to take a risk? And the influence and the idea of leading by example is obviously still very much around as an idea. And you mentioned the Queen being vaccinated against COVID. And obviously we saw all those selfies with politicians, you know, rolling up their shirt sleeves in order to demonstrate that that's what they'd done in order to lead by example. It's absolutely no different from what she was doing in 1768. And we should say that Thomas Dimsdale came out of this very well. I mean, he was away from his family for a long time, but he was mightily rewarded. He was. He gained enormously financially from this. He was given extraordinary wealth for the time. But he and his son Nathaniel, who had helped him, were also both made barons of the Russian Empire. And that baronetcy was handed down through the family. He was also given gifts. This was another way of her promoting Russia, actually. She loved merch. Um, (laughs) And she got the St. Petersburg porcelain factory going again. They were producing this wondrous stuff. And she knew that by handing that out to Thomas and to other guests, that the artistry and skills of Russian craftsmen would be seen elsewhere in Europe. So he went back laden with diamond-encrusted snuff boxes and all kinds of other gifts and paintings, portraits of her, engravings of himself, all kinds of things. And they maintained, actually, this friendship for life. And they write to each other. And then he sends her various things, including some Italian greyhounds who then breed. And this becomes Catherine's kind of signature dog. So he really did have this ongoing impact. They kept writing, and in fact, he returned to Russia, interestingly, 13 years later to inoculate her two grandsons. So again, she still absolutely believes in this technology. She puts it first, uh, and he arrived again. But in him, because presumably other doctors could have done that, but it was him she wanted. I think she was loyal, especially when you, you have the isolation of power and of absolute power in particular, where people have been loyal and you feel you can trust them absolutely, then you really cling to that. She probably wanted him back as as a friend and by then reminding her of her own, I suppose, strength and wisdom in taking that decision. And you mentioned the similarities between uh, COVID, writing this during lockdown. Is there anything we can learn by looking at this story? I think what struck me most when I was researching this and seeing constantly the resonances from that time is just how much we have in common with people from... 250, 300 years ago, we definitely can see the same instinctive concern and fear about inoculation as people still have now about vaccination. In fact, one of the things that really struck me was when I was looking at the introduction of inoculation to Britain, which happened in the very early 1720s, there was a pamphlet written and it refers to anti-inoculators. Mm-hmm. So that's the early anti-vaxxers. So the moment this technology appears, the backlash to it emerges. So I don't know if we're just learning that, you know, nothing really, really changes, I think. But arguably, we could, we could have seen that pressing things on people does not necessarily work, that trust is absolutely hugely important in encouraging public health generally, specifically in encouraging people to take this tiny upfront risk, tiny, tiny one that any vaccination has, any healthcare treatment has, to forestall a much greater risk. Thank you, Lucy. Well, let's let's take a little sidestep now and uh, hear some poetry. I hear from poet Sam Miller. He recently completed an MA in creative writing at Anglia Ruskin University and Retail Park is his first collection. When I met Sam, I started by asking him if he'd always wanted to write poetry. Yeah, I started writing poetry when I was in secondary school, just for like fun. I don't know why I thought that would be the the Essex version of fun but like it sort of stayed with me and then coming to uni meeting loads of different poets and students it just like it's always been the first love and this collection's called Retail Park it's an intriguing title not very poetic arguably (laughs) (laughs) I live in Basildon I live near a place called Pips Hill Retail Park all of Basildon is just an interesting place but I think that the industrial look to it at times and things like that it just I went through a lot of weird titles, but this one just sort of felt right for what some of the poems were trying to say as well. So, I mean, quite challenging, really. You know, it's quite intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> no. a collection called. Uh, How did the collection come about? Were you always aiming for a collection? 
No, I don't think I was. Some of the poems I started writing when I was in uni, so like six or so years ago, I never thought they would be part of a collection. I was just writing them for me. I was talking to a friend and like I wanted to have a collection. I wanted to sort of say goodbye to like a section of like the last six years or the last so many years and I was reading through some stuff and, and I thought it worked and then you sort of work with it and see if there's any themes and things and but it never no it never started as a as a collection it was just poems and were there any themes when you you started pulling the poems together oh yeah religion family hometown a lot of what I write about is about family and home and so a lot of where I've grown up has informed that and things so that was like a natural theme that was occurring throughout and then religion on top of that like my family like my brothers uh, study theology my dad's a Christian we all sort of float in between that and it's always quite an interesting dynamic when it comes up it's fun to write about so yeah that's come up a lot as well so, and how yeah. does the poetry help you explore those themes because there's no one else to talk to <laughs> do you know what I mean so there's they're very you know even the ones that are about superheroes or whatever, it's all about it's all about me, do you know what I mean? It's all about the things that I'm feeling. So it helps to articulate the sort of images and the thoughts that you have that you can't share with family and friends or even with yourself. It's like you're having a conversation and, and you're bleeding out the nasty bits and, and trying to make something good out of it. So you're going to read for us now. Thank you. Thank you. So this is the first poem in the book uh, and it's called I've Got You. The first three poems are like a, a superhero thing from different perspectives. I've got you. Caught his jaw fizzing. Hands like hammers. Playful press presence and dismissal of praise after the day is saved. I thought I'd always feel this good. I could save a bank in the time it takes for you to draw the gun. Catch a bullet between my fingers and fire it back just under the knee. I'll find the killer from the way they cut the throat. And filter the thoughts of everyone who hopes to do the worst they can. I'll be asked to drain the rivers, speak at your birthdays, find your keys, and I want to, I really want to, but some days are too short. I didn't take you on as a sidekick, apprentice or confidant, I just needed someone else to see, and maybe when I'm older, you'll take all the parts they thought the best and do something with them. I fly through the wall and catch my cape on the door, Snap back, not my first mistake, but it's different now. Overpowered, your leg is caught under rubble and you're crawling. To turn your body would mean looking away and you've never done that. I've got your eyes and I hold them. What happens next won't fix anything, but I couldn't keep it up. The pressure from forearm clasping hand around neck and squeeze. I say, I want this. Don't let that torture you. No more room in my mouth for an explanation. I collapse to the sound of your one scream amplified. I wasn't here to let you down today, and I hope you made it out. I'm sorry I couldn't do that first. This one was quite a short one. I'd read a thing in the Bible, and there was stuff about sparrow bones, and I thought that was a really cool thing so this is called that wasn't fair on the birds i'd heard the plan was to give our bodies sparrows bones blessed and crushed to an impossibly small size have them poured in the supposedly holy mixture with knitting needles for scratching plans for a temple and honeycomb for healing really what else could i ask for something to help my eyes and stronger arms for casting off the secrets for killing body and soul Thank you. Thank and you. this collection is dedicated to Karen Freeborn, who yeah. was your tutor at Anglia Ruskin University. Yeah, she was the best. I only knew her for, for like three years. And I'd never met someone who so passionately and aggressively understood and like loved the power of words and what they could do and how they could make you feel. She loved it and it made me love it and it made everyone else around her love it. We're both from Basildon as well, which was such a huge thing. Like, here's this brilliant poet from the same place as me, and we're talking about the same places. 
and all the things that, that, that we can write about and stuff like that and it's such a huge thing I think for me that I could get a book published and dedicate it to her because it just doesn't exist without her. none of it does so yeah. what influence does she have on your writing before I met her I think I was really scared to try and be funny and um, the first open mic night that Karen had hosted I read like this incredibly inappropriate poem and she was so happy <laughs> and like, it was so much fun and like oh, she made it it sounds weird but it made it less scary to just say anything and now you know I can talk about family or self-harm or drugs or things like that and I massively attribute that to how easy Karen made it to want to write and to write and how does it feel to have this collection out there in your hand? <laughs> it is crazy. It is mental. <laughs> like, um, yeah. I never thought this would happen. You've probably heard that from lots of people, but like, I really never thought this would happen. When I got the email, I was just doing stuff, you know, <laughs> on my laptop, and I got the little thing in the corner, like the little notification, and it came up like, um, your recent submission. And I was like, oh, it's probably a rejection. I'll get to that in a minute just chilling and I opened it and I was I was just like just lost I couldn't believe that someone like they wanted to to back my book do you know what I mean and put it out there and people were reading it and you know I get messages from people who say that that they love it or that they've got something from it which is the the goal or that they've got a little bit of basled in in them <laughs> like it's such a weird thing so and yeah. so what's next I've been starting to do like serialised poems I think the next step is to do like a, another collection but have like a like a real thing going through it yeah keep working keep writing hopefully more books to come if I'm lucky and Retail Park by Samuel Miller is published by Quarencia Press we've been talking on Bookmark today to Lucy Ward about her book The Empress and the English Doctor How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus published by One World well, Lucy, what's next for you? I'm very interested in a story that does appear in this book. It's about someone else that Thomas Dimsdale inoculates at the behest of George III, actually. A very, very interesting figure. I'm not going to go into I know it the person you're talking now. about. Absolutely fascinating figure. Yeah, yes. so it's more a case of reading the book. But I think when you're writing a book and you have to try and marshal your story and sometimes things or characters or events come into that book that try to take you off down a not a cul-de-sac but off on another whole road and you have to force yourself to stop and, and sort of bring them into line and this was one of those journeys that I wanted to go on and couldn't and so I'm hoping that I will be able to write that for a second book. And a question we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading a biography of Alexander von Humboldt by Andrea Wolff. Um, it's been out for a few years. It's following the same theme. I'm really interested in 18th century science. Humboldt really isn't known enough, I don't think, here. But extraordinary explorer, botanist, scientist. But the thing that really is jumping out at me is how in the 18th century he observed essentially climate change. He saw the damage that deforestation and other man-made actions were having on the environment in South America, wrote about it and developed the whole idea that there's a global unity within nature. So very, very early was raising concerns that obviously we're wrestling with today. It's really quite remarkable and it's a beautifully written book by Andrea Wolfe. Oh, thank you, Lucy. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But a heads up that our next show featured guest is crime writer Jim Kelly, writing as J.G. Kelly, and he'll be talking about his new novel, The Silent Child. We'll hear from Dorothy Coombson about her new emotional thriller, My Other Husband, and John Phelps discusses his latest crime novel. But we'll sign out now, Lucy, with your last choice of music, which is Yoy, 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 which is a track from... The film The Unbearable Lightness of Being. That's right, and that's where I first heard it. I'm not someone that's very good necessarily at listening to soundtracks of films. I tend to focus on words. I did an English degree. I'm quite wordy. But this really struck me, and I've loved it since. It's a song sung by a Moravian traditional singer called Yarmila Shalakova, and it's a story about the death of a headman in a community. It's a sort of mourning song. It isn't something that, not, that everyone will probably like. It's quite striking. It's in Czech. <laughs> 
I love it. I love its power and intensity and the kind of yearning within it. Yeah, to me, it unlocks something that's quite un-English that I really love. Jeez. 